How do you deal with the world, the tremendous emotional and physical pain that is going on in today's world with the pandemic, but how do you also say, here's what it's going to look like when you come out, not with naivety, but a realistic plan on how to get there, and then you lead. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, I.D. Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know that we exist for you. So if you're an organizational leader who's really wrestling with some tough leadership decisions, if, if you're looking for some expertise and would love to get a hold of some of our faculty and pick their brain, or you just know of a great individual who's going to make an awesome guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-P-U-I.edu. It's incredible the time we live in today as a society. Here, we can grab a device that fits in the palm of our hand and can access data from anywhere around the world. We can get knowledge from everywhere and, and look up anything with by a couple, couple sentences and instantly you have instant feedback on your device. So it's not the important thing that we gain this information and whoever has the most information to win. It's how do you connect those pieces together and how do you leverage that information to connect the dots, if you will, in order to make great business decisions. Well, today we are honored to sit down with the former CEO of Cisco Systems, who's the author of the book, Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. He's a Kelly School of Business MBA alum, and now the current founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures, Mr. John Chambers. Welcome to the ROI Podcast. Matt, it's a pleasure to be with you today. We've got to call each other by first names, it's all right, including Dean, if I may call you ID, I'd be honored. So you have this incredible book that you've published called Connecting the Dots, and it's been so fun to read. And one of the biggest takeaways I gained from it is the simplicity of how it's put together. It's very simply written, yet it's so powerful in the principles that it offers and the wisdom that it shares over your time at, at Cisco. And, you know, there's this common thread or the thesis uh, that sh constantly shows up throughout the chapter. You know, the quote where you say, Quote, when I look back on the incredible competitors, you know, you're speaking of the competitors of Cisco Networks, who later disappeared, I realized that most of them didn't fail because they suddenly did the wrong thing. They failed because they kept doing the right thing for too long. And that's a very interesting thought. And I want to know why that is such a powerful quote for you and how that became the bedrock for this whole book. If you think about it, life, we're more a product of how we handle our challenges and how we deal with the setbacks than we are our successes. And many people often don't realize that you have children and you begin to see how important it is, not how your child handles a great grade or a winning soccer goal, but when they get knocked down for the first time, uh, when something goes wrong in the social environment, how they respond to that has a huge amount to do with their future. For me, being dyslexic, and I never used to talk about that at all, I thought it was a huge weakness and a secret that I would keep, uh, I had to learn to overcome it. And without a great teacher, Mrs. Anderson, I would have never got around it. Once I did, even though my parents are both doctors, uh, once I learned how to deal with the challenge, I could accomplish things I never dreamed were possible. 
I also saw that at West Virginia, my home, where it was the uh, industrial center in terms of the chemical industry of the world, coal mining center of the world, and more millionaires in West Virginia than all the United Kingdom combined. Yet we lost our leadership because we failed to change. We kept doing the right thing too long. Then I saw it in high tech with the IBM, a mainframe player that missed the mini computer business. At Wang Laboratories, the mini computer company I was with, missed the PC and client server. PC and client server players missed the internet. The internet in part missed the cloud play. You know where I'm going with this. Almost inevitably, a new generation of leaders come in because somebody keeps doing the right thing too long. And it actually is worse than taking the risk and occasionally missing. So I like to just share that very candidly, but I've also learned to your point in teaching the students and the students can be 60 year old students. Uh, uh, I'm constantly learning myself. Uh, they'll remember the stories more than they will the punchlines. So that's how I tried to write the book, tell the stories in the book and then kind of the key takeaways at the end of the chapter, summarizing the chapter with key points. So John, this gets to the very heart of management and ensuring that a leader can get his or her organization members to follow new paths, even when the current paths may be still financially promising. Yes. This is moving from one S-curve or life cycle of technology to another. So I'm wondering what your best advice is for leaders. How can they almost act like a Paul Revere, a sense of heralding and convincing people about the need for impending change because of the challenges that you're going to face? What's the best way to convince people in those circumstances? Well, the best way to convince, convince them, Addie, is to share with them the negatives if you don't. We are often motivated by more about fear and what happens if it doesn't work than we are the successes. However, I'm a believer in dreaming. A Shimon Perez, protege, if you will, the late president of Israel, who I knew for 17 years, he taught me to bring dream big dreams uh, and to think like a teenager, much like we were when we originally went to college or early years of MBA school. Uh, but I break it down into elements. The role of a leader, and especially the CEO of a company, regardless if it's a very small company or very big, strategy and vision for the company, develop, recruit, and maintain the leadership team to implement that vision and strategy, culture and communications. And during times of challenge, actually culture and communications are so much more powerful, uh, even perhaps even more than strategy and vision in terms of the implementation on it. Then one of the challenges faced today is all the students you've graduated in the last 12 years, none of them have ever seen a downturn. And even with the existing CEOs uh, of big companies and small companies and government, they've only seen it at usually a dramatically lower level in the organization and they have no idea what that void in your stomach is like when you're making a decision that you know will determine the future of your company or not. You make a decision that unfortunately you have to lay off people and you know the terrible implications for their family. Leadership is really lonely. But if you haven't experienced that, all of a sudden you're seeing the first economic quote challenge in 12 years. And what you would consider the basics that you would have taught us in MBA school, this team has never put to practice. And so understanding what you know and knowing what you don't is a key element of it. And then deal with the world the way it is, not the way you wish it was. My parents were both doctors. They taught me, realize what you have in life and then deal with it appropriately. To wish it was different does nobody any good. And that's definitely not what people want to see from leadership. But a key takeaway is 
communication skills during times of challenges, how you communicate the key issues, how you properly position them, how you paint the picture of how you come out of them are key. And communication is much listening. Then it's culture. It sounds unique, but it's like a great IU basketball team. Uh, how you build the culture where it's one team with one goal and they can almost know where each other will be ahead of time without looking at them to make the pass. Culture and communications are equivalent to, if not more important than strategy and vision uh, during the downturns. I, I really believe before organizations can create disruption, the leaders of the organization that are leading the charge and leading the culture and leading the communication, they need to have a confidence in themselves, you know, confidence in, in their abilities um, and even a confidence that where they're weak at. And I think that becomes a key part for leaders is, you know, embracing the weakness as a leader and being confident even still within their weakness. So for a lot of these leaders who wrestle with weaknesses of themselves, you know, how can leaders embrace some of those challenges or embrace who they are in full so that they can then go ahead and lead confidently to lead toward disrupting their industry in the right way? So it's a, Matt, it's a very delicate balance, uh, being very candid uh, during good times, but especially during the challenging times. And make no mistake, we're in a challenging time now. My own view is it's probably going to last three to five quarters. I'm not a pessimist here, nor overly an optimist. I think I'm a realistic optimist, perhaps, in terms of the direction. Uh, You've got to know what you know and know what you don't. Uh, There's the fine balance because your team, when they know, that their future as a company, their jobs are dependent upon you. The customers look at you and know that if you mis-execute, you could cause them huge disruption in a negative way as well. You've got to have that fine line between confidence and the ability to lead a team and when to be a little bit transparent and a little bit vulnerable. But make no mistake about it. It's like the lead of a dog sled. the, The whole team does not go any faster than the lead dog. But if the lead dog goes at a pace the rest of the team can't keep up with, they break down. And so it's the ability to strike that balance becomes very, very key. Uh, it's also the time when leadership is really lonely. When leaders told me, John, Jack Welch uh, uh, taught me an awful lot. Leadership is terribly lonely. And I said, 40,000 people were about to become the most valuable company in the world. Jack, you know, it isn't lonely at all. And he said, yes. Same message that Shimon Perez sent to me. Leadership is extremely lonely because when it gets tough, you are by yourself, no matter what people say and no matter how good your friends are around you, they're looking for you to lead. They're looking for you to take the responsibility to put the corporation or the organization on your back and with your team and empowering your team navigate through it. Uh, It's scary the first time you do it. If I could tell you, I felt really good going into it. I knew I've always known what I know and know what I don't. I may not admit to it, Matt, but I focus on that. And I knew going into my first huge downturn in 2001, uh, I didn't have all the answers. And then I took a real risk because we had been the most valuable company in the world and we couldn't do anything wrong. I mean, there was never a negative article for 10 years written about Cisco. We created 10,000 millionaires among our employees. Uh, the leadership team made every, every magazine cover imaginable. And then all of a sudden people were questioning, can you even lead this company? And uh, it's the classic execution. Uh, and if I can, I'll go into it. When you find yourself in a crisis, the playbook is remarkably predictable. Number one, be realistic how much was inflicted by the outside forces and how much internal. And if you've got internal problems at the same time as out external, you've got to deal with them both together. 
Secondly, paint the five to seven major programs, platforms you're going to run, and how those, if you execute right, will get you through the crisis. Uh, number one, be very transparent, don't hide. Uh, number two, uh, in today's world, it's all about cash. <laughs> it's about how do you uh, tighten the expenses really tight. Uh, number three, it's about how do you interface to your employees because your employee, your family, and I believe it's a family for me, uh, is the team that will get you through this. Number four, what are you going to do with customers? How are the relationships going to change? What are their hardships? What are their key issues? You walk down through several more, and I always believe in one or two, quote, wild card topics that are here's what is very unique as we come through it. You paint the picture of what the company is going to be, your North Star as you come through this, off these five to seven programs. You communicate regularly to your employees, to your shareholders, to your partners, to your customers, to the media on the updates, on your quote elevator pitch on how to manage this. You anticipate it'll be longer than you think it will. They always, always are, and usually deeper. And you position the company for how you come through it. And you just stay with that rhythm. And then at the right time, as things you begin to get that really working well, then you have a chance to break away. What many people don't realize is we went from a company at Cisco with 70 million in sales to 47 billion uh, at my time at Cisco. Uh, we gained share during the good times, but really it was during the bad times is when we broke away from all our competitors and usually where the competitors wielded under our, our uh, intensity, if you will, on that. So every downturn I've been through, we've gained share on. And I try to teach the startups, how do they do the same thing? How do you deal with the world, the seriousness of it, the tremendous emotional and physical pain that is going on in today's world with the pandemic uh, and the issues with it? But how do you also say, here's what it's going to look like when you come out, not with naivety, but a realistic plan on how to get there. And then you lead. And so with my 18 startups, one of the things I want to do is how do we lead through this with all 18 as an example for others? And that's where I partner with President Macron in France and uh, Prime Minister Modi in India on how do you do startup nations in France where I'm the French high tech ambassador or in India with the digital India uh, with 1.4 billion people where I'm the chairman of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum. So it's how do you get those anchor points, if you will, what you do and how do you make a difference? John, I want to go back just for a second to sure. the disruption we were talking about. And I recognize in the question I'm about to ask, your, your answer may have been different just two short months ago at the start of all of this pandemic versus now. But I'm wondering what industries you think will likely be disrupted as we move forward in the future. What are the industries that are most vulnerable? They're all most vulnerable. Uh, unlike 2008, uh, where the finance industry was the key challenge and the key problem, the great news is our financial companies are in very strong shape and they can help lead through it, but they're also vulnerable to a new generation of startups. So go across every industry in terms of the exposure here. Nobody's immune from it. You either disrupt or you're going to get disrupted. The speed of disruption is going to be based on a terrible pandemic, a, the most steep market GDP decline, probably 15 to 20% this next quarter, negative, which even when I read about it in the 1929 books, I, I said, that's impossible. It's going to happen from 3%, 5% growth to minus 15 to 20. And then what you look like as you come out through it. So this is kind of how I, I tend to approach it. 
Uh, and uh, I approach it this country. If we do our job right, we'll come out of it stronger than before. It's a lot what you all taught me at Indiana in the business school. You did an amazing job, even with a very difficult, slow student that I needed remedial training periodically, <laughs> but really focusing on how do you, you drive through it. So education's the equalizer in life. My parents taught me that. Uh, you combine that with the internet, the second equalizer in life, and the wild card, all of you want to watch. I think the third one's going to be artificial intelligence and automation at an unbelievable speed. So those are the kind of, if you will, the foundations, I think, great schools, great countries, great businesses will be built upon. I, I want to go back just for a second to that education is the great equalizer, because that's a point you make in the book. And of course, I can't resist this as dean of a business school. Sure. You say that an education can give you something no one can take away flexibility to do what you want and a process of continuous learning. I'm wondering what can business leaders do to embrace that philosophy of education and continuous learning in their own organizations? Well, I think it ties back to culture. Uh, Adi, uh, if you watch a culture and at Cisco, we were a family. All 75,000 people, I knew every illness of every employee, their spouse, their kids, even their parents. It was life-threatening. We were there for them like no one else. If you will, not just a capitalistic overworld view of how do you make money for the shareholders, but also how do you benefit society? And by the way, the two of them go hand in hand amazingly well. Wherever I was number one in the world in corporate social responsibility, we were number one in market share without exception in terms of the direction. And so it's how do we as leaders think about this perhaps differently at a different speed uh, than we've done before and how we execute through it. It's going to be tough. I don't want to mislead anybody listening to this podcast. Uh, 40 to 50% of the Fortune 500 will be gone in a decade. This will dramatically accelerate it back to your industry question. Obviously, areas that are most vulnerable, uh, airlines, if you will, uh, transportation as a whole, hospitality. But one thing that will surprise you, several of those companies, and this is the cool thing about startups, untouching them all, you have several of them that are going to say, we don't want to be in this crisis, but we can deal with the world the way it is. They are going to leapfrog and attempt to break away versus their traditional competitors now. And they're willing to take the risk and bet their future as the company and as a leader on making that transition. And you're seeing it from areas you might shock you. So everybody's going to be disrupted, but it will probably be more of a, a rolling disruption depending on the industry, whether you're in retail or whether you're in financial uh, over time. But everybody will be completely disrupted and every company will be. Probably 70% of the startups will uh, be gone, not just in a decade, probably 30% of them, maybe even 40 will be gone in two years. We saw that in 2001 in high tech. We saw it at 20 to 30% in the 2008 downturn. You know, sticking with education, a lot of organizational leaders uh, may uh, struggle with, you know, wanting to be hungry. I mean, they just want to keep doing the same thing. Like your quote says how we started this off. You know, it's not that you do something wrong, but it's to do the right thing for too long. You know, and I think yes. that even that mindset even comes into education where organizational leaders think, well, I know what I know, and that is getting me by. And that is, you know, it's making me successful. Yet, without having that hunger to grow and to be ahead of the curve, you know, like you say people are going to get left behind. So for organizational leaders who are hungry and are trying to gain knowledge, where, from your perspective, is a great place for them to spend most of their time in developing their leadership skills? I'm going to show you my bias here. Uh, I, I believe that you look at the future of a company, it's about understanding your customer well, and it's about understanding your employee family. And I realize employee family isn't for everyone, and most companies really don't practice that. 
but boy, it's powerful if you do. So what I do is I listen to the customers and they tell me the market transitions that are going on. You talked earlier, Matt, about the capability to get access to your iPhone and the ability to see everything going on in the world. That's old school. I was doing that 25 years ago, knowing every order at Cisco everywhere in the world versus forecast as of one minute ago uh, versus based on that rate, what the week would be, what the month would be, what the quarter would be. 80% of our business was new every quarter. We never missed a forecast. Always plus or minus one or two points above, one or two cents above. And people say, well, it's amazing how you keep doing that. And I always wondered, well, why didn't you anticipate I would do it each quarter uh, on it? And the one quarter we were still within the range, but one penny below consensus, the stock dropped 20%. So understanding how do you do this? But what got me into trouble was I became too dependent upon those numbers. And so in 1999, the December time period, uh, it was growing at 70% year over year, the first week in December. Historically, that meant I was going to grow at least 50% the next quarter. I'd only forecast 35%. I told the market we were going to grow 35% plus. And by the third week in January of 2000, we were dropping at a pace that was breathtaking, unfortunately down 30%. I'd never grown less than 50% minus 30, a swing of 100%. I made the mistake of even though those financial markets were dropping, I did not go out and spend the time with the customers. And if I'd done that, I would have seen it coming. I didn't make that mistake again, but it was very painful. However, once the topics that we had found this, I realized my mistake. I made the decision, called my management in in the morning. We announced that afternoon restructuring the company, unfortunately layoffs. We outlined a plan and we were done in 51 days before any of our competitors even moved. And while I'd done anything to avoid that, and I mean anything, it was what broke us away from all our peers. And most of our peers didn't even make it through it uh, in terms of transitions. I want to follow up on this idea about um, data and and getting information from your customers, because sometimes um, people, uh, organizational leaders, they, they sort of negate customer comments. They'll say, oh, those are bad customers, or you know, we don't care if we lose those customers anyway, or they don't know us, they don't know anything about us, or you can't please everyone. And I'm wondering, how do you contextualize the customer feedback? Of course, you don't want to overweight any single voice, but you certainly don't want to dismiss customer feedback that's so valuable. So how do you make those judgments and weigh that, those perspectives? Well, it's a little bit different for if you're a business-to-business customer versus business-to-consumer. Let's just talk about business-to-business. The first time I would have a young CEO of one of my startups say those customers aren't that important and they don't understand it and and they complain too much, we'd have a long discussion. Uh, If there was somebody in my organization at Cisco where I listened to every critical account in the world every night and the critical accounts we fixed, grew 50% faster than those that had never had a problem. Almost you know, opposite of what you would think. You'd think your customers who never had a problem would be the best. Uh, I drive through the company to be customer first in everything you do. So I start off with being driven by the customer. Then I focus on making innovation happen. And then I focus on just doing the right things and then building great teams that are almost unbeatable. And we almost are. And that's what I try to build deep into the DNA of the company with the humbleness. So if I have a leader that is saying, well, customers don't understand it, uh, I usually, depending on how firm a nudge or how big of a you know, love tap I need to do, just to say, 
if you're my competitor, I've got you. This game is already over. I acquired 180 companies uh, at my time at Cisco, two-thirds of which were successful in an industry with high-tech acquisitions where 90% fail. The first thing I would do is focus on a company that I really like the strategy and vision of. Then was the leader really good? And then I'd go straight to their customers. And I'd say, what do you think of this company? And I'd go sit down with the CEO. If she didn't mention or he didn't mention customers at least two to three times in my first five minutes of talking with them, I wouldn't acquire the company. And so people said, you know, how did you get everybody to adjust to your culture? I didn't. I only acquired companies that were similar to the culture that I believe in. And customer first in everything I do. I try to get that across all the companies I now work with. Finally, as we begin to wrap things up, I, I want to know, because data seems to be such a pivotal point for you, especially running one of the, the largest networking systems in the world, how do you as an organizational leader not let the data lie to you or not use your own blinders to only see the data you want to see to help you feel better, but actually use the data to keep you honest and keep your organizational honest, even, even when it's painful? Well, the first thing, Matt, is to realize you have to change over time. My data was so good for me for 10 years that we were the, the uh, gold standard, the top company in the world in terms of growth and execution, and we just never missed. But you've got to constantly change. Doing the right thing too long, as we said earlier, can be a problem. Secondly, listen to model, uh, multiple data points. I learned that coming out of West Virginia. And again, my challenges at IBM and Wang, uh, same type of thing. You always listen to various data points. So while I missed the 2001 downturn dramatically, I adjusted in 51 days with my team. However, in 2007, the Great Recession, we called it in the middle of the summer of 2007. Something was wrong with the financial institutions. Even though my total data looked good, but my customers in the finance industry slowed their ordering down by just 20% versus normal. Still growing well. And I went to the CEOs and I said, what's going on? They said, nothing, we're just a little conservative. Uh-uh, not eight financial institutions at the same time. So we said there's an economic problem coming. Uh, we called that almost a year ahead of 2008, 2009. We adjusted our company to it and we blew right through it on the direction. And even today, uh, we'll see if, 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 if we got the upturn right, which I, I think will be uh, by the end of this year, if we get the pandemic reasonably under control and if the governments continue to do the right things. Uh, I said in, in January and February, there's something wrong again in the economy. I saw it out of Asia. I saw it with my startups. All of a sudden, people weren't traveling. They were having trouble closing business. The issues in China were coming down into Southeast Asia. I'd seen this movie before. Uh, if you're having sudden slowdown in business and in travel, et cetera, you take it. It was logical. It was going to go global uh, in terms of the approach. So I got my companies ready for what I thought would be a, a, a downturn, potentially a, a pretty good one. Uh, I'm now switching literally this last month to getting ready for the upturn and how do we position it and how do we slide that skill forwards or backwards uh, based on the issues in front of us. We'll see if we got the upturn uh, trend right or not. But again, it's all customer driven, capturing data from many, many sources, sometimes from sources that may shock you in terms of uh, who can give you the best input. I can't resist asking, John, you've talked a lot about M&A and you have an amazing M&A track record, mergers and acquisition track record. And um, it's very, very clear that being an effective negotiator is a very important part of being a good corporate leader. 
And so what you talk about is you need to really understand all the perspectives, anticipate how your customers are going to respond, your peers are going to respond, your competitors are going to respond, and you play it out almost like a chess match. And I was just wondering if you could talk about or speak to why you think it's so important to understand the motives of others and their style of play. Why is that so important? Well, the first is that I'm a huge believer uh, that if you analyze your competitors or even your own team, you're going to be able to predict pretty much what they'll do under situations. So I knew all of my CEO counterparts who were our competitors, what motivated them, what schools did they go to, what did their parents do, how would they make decisions. And in playing the chess game, I could usually predict two to three moves out what they were doing. They, however, as my dad taught me playing brilliant engineers in Charleston, West Virginia during the chemical industry where they were just wicked smart, the engineers were always predictable. My dad and I weren't. And so you knew probably what they were going to do, and they weren't sure what we could do. And a little bit of that unpredictability goes a long way. But to answer your question very specifically, uh, I had a playbook. Here were seven plays I ran on every acquisition, and I never violated those. And anytime I did, I regretted them uh, in terms of was the culture the same? Were they customer-oriented? Could I keep the engineers, get the next product out the door, et cetera? Did 12 acquisitions over a billion dollars uh, on it. Uh, I could get a call from the head of the NASDAQ on a Thursday night saying, John, you're an idiot. Uh, everybody knows on this exchange that a company that you should be buying is going to get bought by somebody else. Uh, why haven't you bought it? And I didn't even know the name of the company. I was kind of embarrassed. And the good news was my business development person didn't know either. But we met with that CEO the next morning of the company. At noon, I had a handshake for a $3 billion acquisition through both boards of directors and announced the following Monday morning, my competitors didn't even know I was there. Speed of an innovation process and really turn the cranks on it. And so when I can get my competitors making it one or two moves at a time, and I'm playing the chess game forwards and backwards, the outcomes, et cetera, I, I've got them most all the time on it. Maybe in my next life, uh, I won't be quite as competitive. Uh, but I doubt it. It's kind of like when Indiana plays Purdue or Kentucky. Uh, I believe we're going to beat them because we're going to take it to them with the intensity. We're going to have our game plan down better than the others, and we're going to have fun doing it. But key takeaways in life at this stage of my time, I really want to make a difference, whether it's in my personal life or the business or the world. Secondly, I want to live life to its fullest, and I do, whether it's taking my teams hunting and fishing up in Alaska uh, with the young CEOs who've never seen a grizzly bear before, much less even caught a fish, uh, or uh, whether you make a difference on countries with France becoming the top startup nation of, of Europe. And then third, I want to give back. And to do that uh, is a tremendous honor in life. And I'm trying to do the best I can to do all three at this stage. Again, John Chambers, former CEO of Cisco Systems, author of Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. That book is available anywhere books are sold. He's also a Kelly School of Business MBA alum and current founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures. Be sure to join us next week as we take these foundational principles from John's book, and we're gonna work to build a playbook so our organizations can begin to re-enter the economy in this crisis. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Idi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.